Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the programme. Okay, this is a special episode of the podcast from the conference of the uh, British International Studies Association, uh, 2015, uh, and we're here in London um, to discuss uh, Robert A. Heinlein's 1959 book, uh, Starship Troopers. You are now going through the hardest part of your service, not the hardest physically, though physical hardship will never tr- trouble you again, you now have its measure but the hardest spiritually, the deep, soul-turning readjustments and re-evaluations necessary to metamorphize a potential citizen into one in being. The noblest fate that a man can endure is to place his own mortal body between his loved home and the war's desolation. With us on the show today, I'm Alex Hoseason. I'm Matthew Campbell. And I'm Martin Riemann, a senior lecturer at the Royal Military Academy Centres. Okay, um, just to just to begin, uh, I mean, multi other guests. I mean, obviously from that quote and key to uh, well, key to the entire book, I guess, is this kind of tension between citizenship and 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 being in society, right? Yeah. And 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 in the book, obviously, citizenship, as in the right to vote, particularly the franchise. Um, is, is, is linked to military service. I mean, do, do you see that as kind of a core part of what's going on here? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's, it's all coming down to this kind of question um, that you have to, to, to sacrifice something of yourself um, in, or, in order to be allowed to vote. Um, there's a certain duty that you have to fulfill before you actually acquire the right to vote. Um, and one of the things that then Heinlein later kind of um, denied was this idea that... Um, Voting uh, could only be done if you have served in the military. Uh, but he says more something along the lines, as long as you do federal service, you have the right to vote. However, I find this um, very suspicious to get this actually out of the book. Um, there, there are very, very few instances that one can interpret in that direction. Oh, certainly. I, I, I find, weirdly, I mean, there's a huge focus on disability in the book, right? right? Because most of the soldiers that come back have been disabled in some way, and he focuses quite strongly on the physical aspect of that disability, while actually not drawing much attention to what else has given up. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's this big focus on, on on people's bodies and their legs. And well, what's curious about that is that so they have the guy who's at the recruitment desk, yeah. who's a triple amputee, but when they see him outside of the recruitment centre, he's on prosthetics that apparently cannot be distinguished from the rest of the population. So, while there's a visual horror to Johnny Rico's first encounter, there's an implication that the society does okay by these people. So, the extent to which you can say they've sacrificed physicality is limited in that sense. Yeah, I think, I th- I think that's fair enough. I mean, wh- one, of, one of the interesting things, of course, is that, especially early on in the book, he doesn't really wonder about where the kind of mutilations come from, right? right? And then when it becomes apparent that the guy that got him into the military in the first place is a, is a lieutenant colonel or something mm-hmm. like that, yeah, he then actually starts paying more attention to to that, and particularly the kind of increasing odds that that's going to happen to him. But but there, there's this one idea that, you know, um, in one part of the book there's this kind of critique by, by this colonel, Colonel Dubois, 
um, who says that uh, the American Constitution had it wrong uh, because it says um, it's about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, and he goes along the lines saying, you know, pursuit of happiness, everyone can do as he pleases. Um, but what actually matters, and that's what, what we've forgotten, is uh, life and liberty, to pre preserve life and liberty, um, you have to put a lot of effort into it and sacrifice things for it. So the, the effort bit is there. The effort, obviously, uh, from, from reading of Heinlein, in my perspective, is uh, the only real effort is military effort. Yeah, and also the only real sacrifice is absolute sacrifice. Yes, right. But this is, I mean, the, the, the extent was, yes, okay, the US Constitution got it wrong. That, that, that might sound very subversive, but Heinlein's argument is grounded deeply in how the American War of Independence mm -hmm. was characterized. So there's, you know, the tree of liberty must be watered with the blood of patriots, or, um. Well, they use those examples. Yeah. Didn't or, or, or Tom Paine, well, they, do they use tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, but the harder the, the harder the fight, the more glorious the triumph, right? So. Yeah, yeah. It's also the case that Heinlein isn't really... So the argument is that military service proves that you can put yourself, the needs of society, before the needs of yourself. Mm. And while he may be almost unique in the sense of that's why you must be a soldier to fight, that's not really out on a limb if you consider people's critiques of democracy. So it's often been argued that the primary problems of with popular democracy is that the poor will vote left and the rich will vote right because everyone is actually doing the same thing and voting for self-interest. Now, Heinlein's solution might be horrifying, but he's not actually that unique in terms of critiquing democracy that way. Well, I, I don't think he's necessarily even critiquing democracy, though. I mean, you, you could articulate precisely that idea under a kind of hyper hyperactive republicanism, right? Mm. I mean, you know, the idea, you know, I guess you could come from Rousseau or something like that and basically say, well, you know, what you need is a civil religion in order to make some kind of more substantive idea of what democracy is possible. And not, not procedural democracy, but actual democracy. Democracy that people live. The democracy. Civic pride and all the rest of it. And I mean, I'm always a bit skeptical of those arguments just because it projects back onto kind of, you know, oh, wasn't everything wonderful in ancient Greece, right? I mean, you know, let's ignore the entire slave caste, right, that were at yeah. stake there. <laughs> Athenian democracy was not slaves and not women. I mean, weirdly, despite the kind of completely off-the-track critique of Marx in there, right? I mean, <laughs> I could go on about this for a long time. Alex once said he's always thinking about Marx. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I, would, I would put forward, actually, quite an interesting argument that Marx makes that the reason... I mean, obviously, he basically says, you know, the reason his ideas hadn't arisen up until his present time, right? Was because of the historical circumstances, right? Yeah. And one of the reasons he claims they weren't able to have that idea of ancient Greece, despite the fact that we have this ultimate idea of freedom, was the fact that they could produce anything in their life for free because they had slaves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. But well, what I, coming coming back to the to the whole soldier. Yeah. Issue, probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I think I think it's, it's it's absolutely right. What we're looking at is this idea, you know, of, of a form of republicanism that he promotes uh, that is virtue based. Uh, the Rousseauian tract, maybe it's it's. Put it like this, um, because one of the interesting bits is that when when the book has first been published um, as as a series of short stories, the the name was Starship Soldiers, yeah. um, and then later got renamed when it came out of the book as Starship Troopers, and we see that in a way which is interesting, a kind of um, and 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 a stance that kind of devoids the um, or untangles. The, the, the soldier profession from money. Yeah? 
soldier comes from zolidos, uh, the, the Latin for, for coin. So there's a kind of a monetary implication in that, um, which he then eradicates. You know, it's all about uh, volunteering for the greater good yeah, yeah. Uh, at, at a time when he was writing when, when there was still the, the draft uh, well, in the US. He, he leaves in a curious etymological quirk in the... So one of the key hooks of the book is the idea that the mobile infantry is turning boys into men. And it's not about age, because, of course, Rico's father joins up later and becomes a man after his son does. The word infantry means child soldier. They they were the junior troops. And so this this heroic mobile infantry has has kept the artifacts of the type of warfare it's trying to reject, unless you take the view that warfare has always been about the adultization of trapped children. But there, there's, I think, something in there. So my my reading of it would be there's also something that um, Heinlein sees it in a way that war is rejuvenating. Uh, it, it it makes you younger again, um, and it's kind of that which keeps you alive. It's a um, what, what he produces is a, a consistent war machine that kind of constantly has to fight wars because otherwise, you know, if 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 voting is tied to uh, military service and the entire political system depends. On military service, what happens if there's peace? Yeah? Well, they they do comment that they have too many soldiers, because um, yeah. anyone who wants to volunteer has to get a chance to do something, so they end up mopping floors. And but, <laughs> but again, he draws the distinction, right? I mean, they have too many soldiers and not enough infantry, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and I, I I think there's definitely this transition through the kind of arc of the novel. Mm. Um, I mean, it's barely an arc, it's quite a short book, but I mean, there's, 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 there's definitely this line where it kind of goes from him thinking that he's become an adult, right, when he becomes mobile infantry, and then him becoming an officer, right, and then he kind of doubly becomes an adult, right, because actually what's quite heavily implied, and I doubt Heinlein would think in such soft terms, is that he's become a father, <laughs> right, right, and I don't think Heinlein would allow that. But there's definitely a tension, I think, between the soldier as someone who fights on a moral principle based on nature um, and, and the kind of more social situation of the book, right? I mean, when he's an officer, obviously it's viewed from his viewpoint, so we're seeing his thoughts. But at every other point in the book, when he's talking about operations and everything else, it's very automated, right? So to what point is he something special. And I mean, he re- remarks this when he goes down on his first landing as an officer. To what point is he something special and to what point is he just a mm. cognitive machine? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that's a function of two parts of the novel. One is the, the skill of writing by which the novel breathes its own terminology. So, because, it's, 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 because it's written in flashback, yeah, yeah. Um, Rico uses the word bounce to describe skill, alacrity, or just going somewhere. And it's not until much later you finally get to the chapter on the actual jetpacks they all have, yeah. when they actually start bouncing. Yeah. But the the vocabulary they all speak in is deeply rooted, and I think that connects very closely. But the second thing is that the novel loves technology. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's there's a love for technology in there in the way which I find paradoxical in the way. Is there's on the one hand this kind of um this call for for um a reasonable man who kind of volunteers um, to fight for his beloved nation, the, the Terran Federation, and, and who's a good, virtuous Republican who gives up these things um, in exchange for the right to vote and not connected to, to, to um, base uh, monetary issues or motivations. Um, 
But on the other hand, he himself kind of becomes reduced to this machine-like thing. He's inside the machine, the military machine that constantly needs to, to, to fight. Um, and he himself, his, his entire body actually only becomes a, a functioning and sufficient war machine when it's kind of inside this kind of um, um, suit well, with the jackpack. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely the point. I mean, he remarks on this throughout, right? I mean, during the training and everything else, it's very much like you're basically meeting the suit. Yeah. Right? The suit's worth more than you are, yeah. right? Although, weirdly, this used to be financially. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's also points at and which... training, I think, it's training well, costs $500,000. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, yeah and, but there's also definitely points at which, I mean, towards the end of the book, he also anthropomorphizes the weapons themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. when he's doing things like throwing grenades, launching missiles, all of those kind of chaos, death, and destruction things, he very much, he puts it into the third person, right? The rocket whizzed off, or, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. whatever. Um, Flamer. Yeah, yeah, and he talks about the... There's, I, I just finished reading it, so um, there's a point at which it says when a, when a rocket's that small, you can't make it very clever, right? So, I mean, this kind of <laughs> anthropomorphization of of things gets... For me, it's a little bit weird. Well, I mean, we do this all the time in language anyway, so I'm sure we've all called our computer stupid. So, that, uh, I, 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 I think I'd, I'd, I'd cut high on some slack. I, I think that's just how the English language works. But you, you could argue that the military have done that with smart missiles and so on. But. Yeah, but is, is there not something... I mean, when you're talking about a war machine that goes beyond what a war machine is, right? It goes to a war organism. Yeah. Right? So, at bottom, okay, then, you know, there's the meat in the suits and everything else, and I think this comes back to the way in which Heinlein relates morals to nature. I think one of the things there is that there's a kind of a deep social Darwinism running through the whole book. Yeah. It's, it's this kind of, you know... With the plant uh, species? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, lots of this stuff in there, but I think the most, most fundamental thing is um, when, when his colonel um, Dubois talks to him and tells him uh, that, you know, there are two species that fight for survival. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, they both want the same, so either we wipe them out or they wipe us out. Um, and there, there we might have the link to, to a, a, an idea of fascism or Nazism. Yeah, yeah, and also he brings in the kind of uh, uselessness of free will in that situation, right? Yeah. Because he has a natural imperative. He exactly. says, well, you know, we could choose not to plant these or whatever, but everything else is expanding, right? And I mean, the plants and also by association, the bugs, right? Yeah. Although I do find it quite strange, and this is one, perhaps, catch that Heinlein makes towards the end of the book, is he begins to re-naturalize people towards the end. He states quite explicitly, actually, now I think about it, the people that have made a difference to what I've done and how I've done things are the people. Mm. So he seems to have this recourse. I mean, basically, he becomes, he goes to being a fascist, right? I mean, let's talk crudely. And then at the end becomes a Republican again. Now, I mean, whether he's linking fascism directly to war or defending fascism in a more general sense is, I think, quite an important question. So... It comes down to states of emergency. Right. Well, I, I don't think... Well, there's a state of emergency in the bug war, we're told. And the Aberdeen veterans, and as someone from Aberdeenshire, I find it 
quite amusing that the, the, the global fascism of Star Trek Troopers was started in Aberdeen. Um, Surprising. <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't have been my first guess. Um, and so we're told that the Aberdeen veterans existed in a state of emergency as well. Yeah. But the extent to which the Terran Federation justifies itself through emergency, I'm not so sure that's true. I think it's kind of hard to drive from the book, but I mean, to make a couple of theoretical points, right? Actually, there's a, a fairly strong line of this within republicanism that I'm not sure if Heinlein's saying or not. But, I mean, basically that state of emergency is always possible, right? Now, you can become a citizen in on Terra or the Terran Republic or, you know, their empire or whatever by doing a term of service. Which is at least two years. At least two years, but it's implied by a lot of the characters in the book that it's basically indefinite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe picking up from there, I think where, where he also then brings the political in is, is, is clear-cut enemy, friend-enemy distinction. Uh, um, but there's kind of a, a liberal um, blueprint in there as well when um, he fights against, at the beginning of, of the book, he fights against the skinnies who are allied to the Bucks, um, and later then they become basically... Uh, allies, or as the book actually says, co-belligerents. So we are back to the war narrative. Right, yeah, right. It's all about war. And even though they, they have now joined the, the kind of zone of um, the liberal Terran Federation uh, and be- become part of, of the rational human human beings, I don't know. Because you, you can talk with them. That's, I think, one of the problems that he always identifies, that you cannot talk with the, the box. Well, it's implied uh, the skinnies no. can. Yeah, it's, it's implied. <laughs> Yeah, but that's why they they can kind of they have some form of rationality yeah. uh, that you can reason with. Not rationality, reason. Um, what this other is much more clear cut. You know, either either we spread out and wipe you out, or you spread out and wipe us out. So, so the big issue here is the bugs as the USSR, or just as communism more generally. So this comes out in 1959. Yeah. The Korean War has happened, so the West has had its first big war against communism. Vietnam is yet to happen. Yeah. Um, which is sort of surprising when you think about the mobile infantry feel of the warfare in it. Russian nuclear weapons. Right. Yes. yes. So, I mean, the, the, the whole book is a response to that. Um, that the, the, there were like talks about cuts in the nuclear program in 1958, <clears throat> and Heinlein kind of uh, said he was he was compelled to write a book against this. Uh, we we have to keep up uh, armament. We cannot cut down because the Russians will obviously take us over if we won't. Um, and throughout the book, this kind of strand runs through in the way that um, we have, on the one hand, the, the, the good uh, decapitalized <laughs> rationalist uh, who's just a virtuous citizen who joins the, the military out of free will. And again, coming back to the point that at that time there was still a conscription yeah. system in place and he calls for uh, an all-volunteer army, which then later is going to happen. Um, but there's an individualistic self that by itself decides, all right, what's the best um, for the state um, is that I become a soldier. Um, and then when I become a soldier, I actually have a right to decide as well what is best for the state by having the right to vote. Well, then on the other hand, the, the, the Bucks are clearly described as, as, as communitarian. Um, they have a hive uh, mind or something. They, they are not... Um, rational individualistic selves. Well, what's, what's interesting is that that so the description is that they they're a collective with no individual self, but they have an evil dictator brain. Yes, which is interestingly <laughs> direct to the communism we got and not the communism of theory. Yes, because the evil dictator brain is the Stalin or the Mao, which 
if it was true Marxism, you could argue isn't there. So the bugs are most definitely a, a real-world response, even though there are theoretical complaints about Marx in the book. Well, weirdly, there's this kind of... I mean, does he use the phrase hive mind explicitly? I think so. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because, I mean... I mean, that's wrong, isn't it? <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> actually... I mean, a hive mind, by definition, is more than one mind. I mean, you could argue if you... Yeah. The kind of stratified view of what a mind was. Well, hive minds don't exist in actual. That's the thing. Well, but I mean, you could take a stratified view of what the mind was and basically say, well, the mind is decentralized in itself, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's possible in that sense, but the bugs they're fighting, right, the part of the hive, I mean, by definition, don't have minds, right? So, I mean, it, it, it's kind of a weird thing. It also, he comes bizarrely close with this kind of military machine naturalized thing. Right, to coming to exactly the same point as the bugs. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so one one of the things that, that you know, just to have the one quote on on the hive mind, you know, their organization, psychological and economic, is more like that of ants or termites. They are communal entities under the ultimate dictatorship of the hive. So we actually have the dictatorship coming in through the hive, but the hive is dictatorship. You know, there's not really the, the control of us. Well, there's the so that. So we're, we're told that, and, and, and Rico is saying that he's taking this as red from military intelligence. Yeah. But when you actually get there and see not only the brain bug, but the bugs using strategy to defend it, is the same couple of chapters whereby the mobile infantry are bouncing around on the surface, and the officers are talking to each other about what they think, and they're passing the ideas up to fleet command. Yeah, it's precisely my point. Yeah. yeah. So we, we have, not only towards the end of the novel does Heinlein sort of bring the humans back into the mobile infantry, it's really the first time that there are maybe accidental parallels drawn between his perfect military regimen and the slightly fetishistic way there's the, a literal diagram in the edition I've got of how the regiment's laid out. Yeah, I mean, I would go as far as to argue, right, I'm going to completely invert this because I think it's funny, um, that what happens, because it's heavily implied, once he goes through officer training, right, it's implied that you can answer back. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, ultimately, and this is the state of exception again, the command always comes through. If someone says it twice, you do it, right? Yeah. You know, the same with the when they tell him to freeze and he didn't freeze, he argued, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, I mean, arguably the whole point of republicanism is to achieve some kind of hive mind, right? I mean, republicanism actually rests on a kind of suitably attuned horizon of meaning for what your population the way your population understands now I mean the common good well yeah the common no but the common good but the common good it doesn't have to be a particular thing the no. common good just has to be something everyone believes yes. in now I mean that's a lot closer to a hive mind yeah. than what is implied in kind of pseudo-biological terminology with the bugs because they have a literal brain and they can't because it says they can't kill it it's their literal brain yeah I mean admittedly it's also the case that they don't know much about the bugs and there's more than one brain bug and yeah, they yeah. hypothesise that there's more than one queen. Yeah, well, I'm not sure if the existence of the queen's ever confirmed. Maybe it is. No, I, no, I don't, I don't okay. think so. Um, but, but, but what I see in there as well is this kind of, you know, in, in a way this liberal narrative, right, getting away from republicanism, but, you know, the infused liberal narrative that has parts of republicanism in there. Um, shows this kind of strong opposition between civilization and nature. 
Um, and what we've seen playing out here is this kind of absolute nature of the bug, uh, who kind of develops uh, and grows. Uh, and on the other hand, we kind of combat that um, by civilizational means to acquiring technology that then allows us to basically come on a similar level, yeah? having the command chains and having the constant exchange of ideas and 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 um, and. and Speech. I think speech has become very important there because in the other it's just assumed that they communicate somehow. But we obviously, as as good Terrans, um, use the, the the tool of communication. We are we are logos. Uh, we we have rationality. We can speech. We are not barbarians that cannot speak. Yeah, and I mean, the funny thing is, I would actually argue that. I mean, this comes from kind of my theoretical perspective on things. But I mean, there's such a thing as. Nature, you know, as in natural bugs and plants and stuff, right? I mean, so bugs are this kind of lower level. But, I mean, the idea of republicanism, and this is the slight difference I pointed out earlier between the war machine and the war organism, mm -hmm. is that actually that is a kind of second nature. That's the natural state of the good, mm -hmm. in some sense. And that's precisely the point at which kind of camaraderie and communication comes back in when he's able to talk back to his commanders, when he's able to say, well, actually, there were people here that convinced me and cajoled me and shouted at me and everything else, and I became a better person for it. And I think he naturalizes that slightly. But I think there, there's this one thing that, you know, we're still this kind of stranded reasoning man who is the master of his own um, destiny, who can control his... Um, future and who makes his own decisions uh, and then so these decisions obviously ultimately then is able to master nature itself yeah um, and he does that through, through technological means in a way that's always this kind of, 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 of um, conflict here while the, the nature obviously has some of these things as well acquired but you know it's not reasoning man who bounds nature and who binds it to his will um, and I think he's doing that here. The bugs are pure nature that um, expand and consume and just be. Yeah, I mean, they're a bit of a trope in that sense, right? Mm. I mean, it's quite interesting to see the mapping of the Soviets onto that, mm. on, 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 onto that trope that we see, well, everywhere, right? Warhammer, yeah. um, you know, being mm. the obvious one. Um, aliens, right? You know, um, I mean, it's interesting that you suggest that, uh, I mean, said that, this is a point at which conscription is, is still a thing. Because, I mean, obviously that's quite a Republican defense, right? Yeah. Be your own man, completely volunteer force. Mm -hmm. um, and all that kind of thing. I mean, War, Warhammer or Warhammer 40k is interesting in that regard. Huh? Um, where there's a lot of, you know, st stuff from, basically, from Starship Troopers. But, I mean, you probably find it's actually Marines. directly taken. Or, right. you know, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's so. what Warhammer is, is just a kind of... It's, bag, right? it's the fun melting pot of, in one case, <laughs> fantasy, and in one case, sci-fi. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, 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 there's an extent to which... So, I mean, the, the 40k universe has its own genre of military sci-fi. Yeah. But with some very few exceptions, there's almost no attempt to say anything with them. It's about... So Starship Troopers is about men in powered armour... And then it's also about fascism and communism and, and yeah, yeah. all these. But whereas uh, a forty k space marine is a man in powered armor, and it's about guns. <laughs> and so I mean, potentially, but he's, a, he's an engineered human being, uh, right? So, but so the, the, the the defense of Starship Troopers potentially is, <laughs> yeah, okay, it's techno fascism. But here's what uh, point to point at a forty k novel and say, here's what a book that is predominantly just about tech and guns looks like. And Starship Troopers, we know, is more sophisticated than that. Mm. 
So I, I think the interesting bit is that he still has this liberal narrative running through it of this idea of rational or reasonable man. Um, he, he would, I think, Heinlein would be scared to 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 step over the line and think of a genetically engineered human being. Uh, I think that would run counter to this idea because then we would run into problems of of subjectivity. I think I mean there's some quite interesting stuff. I mean this is a little bit of an odd one given the context, but there's certainly points at which you can see their aggression and everything else getting redirected in particular ways, right? So that when they need to fight, they can do it perfectly. Yeah. Right? So you've got Bulkhead 30, you know, all the women, you know, one of the yeah. joys is standing guard on Bulkhead 30 because all the women walk past, things like shore leave and everything else. And at that point, it seems to become quite close to this kind of platonic idea of a kind of warrior caste. Right? Yeah. Which, I mean, is a fairly verifiable fact, right? I mean, having spent some time in a town that was near an Air Force base, you know, you always knew when yeah. the troops were coming home or, you know, whatever. You know, that was a kind of town mantra. Well, there's almost. the idea that you are forged into it. Uh, you, you made it. Um, and, and you made yourself through this. Um, where I think if that would have been genetically engineered, that would run counter to his, to his ideas. Yeah. I mean, but there is, again... I mean, there's the hypnotherapy, right? Yeah. Now, I mean... By definition, I mean it's not the same as a as a space marine, right? But I mean it's it's structurally the same, yeah. right? Yeah. But 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 the the important distinction is that so I mean even to the point, sorry, even to the point where they can switch them on and off at the end of the book. When they need yes, it. right. But the, the, this is then where where we progress to the stage, yeah. uh, where it becomes problematic again. And, and I think the interesting bit is how he himself like ends the the, the narrative um, without. Uh, the raid on on the back home planet actually having happened yet. Uh, he ends before that actually. But the, the, even though we don't get to the end of the war, there's a big implication that you can go home, right? Mm. So a lieutenant colonel can go off and become a school teacher mm. because that's what happened. Mm. And so if you compare that to 40k, where space marines are immediately apart, or Joe Holderman's The Forever War, which is starship troopers, but the lesson is that you can't go home, and mm. the war will irrevocably change you. Yeah. I, th I think that Heinlein is holding very firmly on to the idea of a human as a human, and even becoming this mobile infantryman. There's no face. There's no face, and there's no human in that warfare. Well, there, there we're back to questions of, of juvenile education. Um, that the only ones that actually can properly educate young people are soldiers. Um, it becomes important because these are the only ones that have some kind of real life experience that is useful for for um, a society that is based on a kind of military machine. Right, so he's, he's got this bit where he goes ah, the problem with the democracies of the 20th century is they couldn't punish people. Yeah. And they were too nice to children and prisons were lovely <laughs> yeah. and that what happened was that we got this we got this feral disaster in, and it's, it's almost racialized yeah. the, the idea of these feral gangs in parks attacking people. Yeah. And that's actually, well, that's a very common narrative in our news media. That's not the case. Violent crime fell throughout the 20th century. And yeah. so there's an extent to which um, Heinlein's idea of imparting discipline upon the youth. In the book, it's definitely grounded on a false idea of history. An interesting question is whether the author has a false idea of history. <laughs> uh, what do you mean? Was he a soldier? I don't know. 
Yes, he was a senior. Oh, was yeah, he was maybe maybe he, that's he the, put the flag on Iwo Jima yeah, or something. Or something. No, 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 I mean, though he was he was in the navy, he did not really see action. Um, but but I think that's where his kind of obsession for the mobile infantry comes from. Maybe of not having made it himself. Now, but not wanting to be a psychopath. I mean, the, the mobile infantry of the Marines, right? There are contingents of them on each ship. Mm. But because of conscription and total war, the that era of science fiction writers, you can look at Jules Verne. Right back from Jules Verne, he designed submarines. Um, Melvin Peake and J.R. Tolkien were in uh, World War One. Yeah. Frank Herbert was in the U.S. Navy, right. and you can imagine a man who spent his life surrounded by an ocean writing Dune. Um, a lot of the major sci-fi writers of that era, of course, due to conscription, fought in wars, and you can see that feeding through into their fiction. Oh, you can see it. Actually, I was pick up on a point on that because I was thinking about this earlier. I find it. I mean, it's a historical. You know, uh, serendipity. Yeah. Well, it isn't. But all the writers, that, I mean, all of them, not all of them, but a lot of the writers, I mean, philosophers as well and everything else, coming out of World War One turned to socialism, right? <laughs> all the writers that came out of World War Two didn't. Yeah. Uh, Ian Clark makes this point. You can spot World War Two in IR because you end up with an awful lot of scholars who are refugees from their home country. Right, yeah, yeah. Basically making the argument that the world is fucked. Yeah. I, I think coming, coming back to, to the, the whole Heinlein thing behind this, this idea of virtue and education, um, I think what, one of his problems there uh, that goes then back to a good old Rousseauian idea is how he really installed this virtue. And, um, yeah, yeah, and, and there's then the problem that for him the only way to do that is military service. And I think that's, that's one of the problems where he himself probably not sees how close he becomes, or how close he gets to, to certain um, ideological strands that he would condemn as a good American. No, definitely. And his, but historically, I find it funny that he can't turn to religion, which is what Rousseau does. Mm. Mm. Right. I mean, I don't know whether that's... Yeah. Uh, I mean, the other thing that the wars did was made a lot of atheists, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, he he is articulating... I mean, I'm not going to treat the entire book as a kind of coherent social theory. I mean, one of the classic strategies in, in, in early liberal social theory was to have this idea of the state of nature. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's exactly what the book sets up all the way through. I do find it weird, though. I mean, my tendency in these things and in films and everything else, I quite like it when the hero dies at the end. Right. right? Because, to me, it's at least some gesture of defiance against kind of narrative trope, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, he doesn't. And he doesn't even, he doesn't get injured either. And, and I find, you he know... He doesn't get injured. Because family life has improved. Yeah, I mean, yeah, everything's better now he's come back from the military. Where, you know, despite the fact that he suggests that it's difficult to come back from the military. And also, I mean, there was definitely a point at which I thought all the focus on disability was a bit of foreshadowing. Yeah. But actually, he was just trying to make a point. <laughs> but I mean, one, one of the problems that, that his kind of whole political system runs into is exactly the state of nature. If, if you suddenly have pacified Earth and everything runs nice and smoothly and, uh, you know, the juveniles do not engage in crime anymore and all this kind of stuff has been stopped, um, you, you need, anyway, in order to uphold such a system, you need some kind of discursive threat underlying it. Um, yeah. which is then the outside that suddenly comes and tries to exterminate you. It's not that you fall back into a previous state of nature. Well, I mean, the, I mean, there's certainly the implication that there are drives in people, right? Yeah. And, and, and these, uh, you know, going away and fighting keeps them, 
keeps them at bay. Yeah. In some regard. Well, there's the there's the scene with the merchant navyman trying to attack the mobile infantry guys when they're on leave. And that, 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 that's this kind of interesting scene, because it, it's actually kind of minor in the, in the context of the plot, but, and uh, the character chalks it up more to, oh god, my sergeant's going to be annoyed that I got into trouble. But, one, this is apparently a society where you get a whole bunch of people who do want to beat up the military. <laughs> um, so th- th- this isn't a society completely at home with this. But two, that violence exists within the book to display the virtue of the mobile infantry. So what happens is that the sailors try to beat them up, and they utterly fail because nothing's better than a mobile infantryman. And then the policeman Space comes along, Marine. and it's... But, it's, but it's he, a, he also keeps himself at bay. You yeah. know, he, he is the, the master of his own passions, while the other one is not. And that, I mean, that's something that yeah. runs a bit through there as well. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting step forward, actually, because, I mean, obviously there's the kind of old Bill Hicks argument that the kind of... the perfect military is a perfectly voluntary one, because then all the people that want to kill each other kill people kill all the other people that want to just kill people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely that kind of mechanistic stop, right? I mean, he doesn't kill the guy when he plainly could. Yeah, yeah. But the... the so, so it's implied that their virtue is that... Um, so in theory, if the policeman had gotten arrest there, those guys are in real trouble because they attacked someone in uniform. And so it's, it's this great virtuous thing that... They so didn't want a man brutalized. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that, 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 that's really weird because, um, it's like, we have created these perfect instruments of violence, and yet their greatest virtue is their control and their dislike of retribution. That, so, that somehow their method of violence is fair and therefore okay. Mm. And not grounded in power, which it clearly but, is. But there's one interesting thing that kind of comes through. through. Through in, in, in Starship Troopers again is this idea of, of um, public punishment. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and we are we are basically going back to you know what what kind of Foucault called you know the the, the sovereign um, violence behind things. So it's a it's a it's a, a visual violence. You see it, you put on the spot because that kind of checks um, people and what they're doing. So it's a it's a it's a violence where the sovereign actually directly. Um, executes it. Uh, it's not this kind of subtle violence that creeps in, uh, which then replaces it and, and makes human beings into docile bodies. But this, the, the book's fairly explicit in it. The way you solve problems is naked force. Yes. Right. Yeah. So yeah. prison doesn't work. Community service doesn't work. Well, I, I, I think it's, violence has settled everything in history. I think it's yeah. a bigger claim than that. Right? Says because the tech colonel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's a bigger claim than that because it's the it's the problems posed by nature should be solved with force, right? Because there's also a slight, I mean, obviously one of the more, and there's been some really interesting work done on this by Foucault and by other sociologists like Norbert Elias and yeah. Andrew Linklater would be proud to hear me saying this, but I mean, one of the more powerful moralizing forces in society is shame, right? Yeah. Now, I mean, what he's feeling shame for, I think, in beating up that merchant marineman is not that he beat the guy up, it's that he beat someone up when he wasn't told to. <laughs> right? He didn't have official sanction. Right? He was out of the chain of command, yeah. as he puts it, in the kind of military operations later yeah. in the book. That, 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 that's, that's a, yeah, if Zim had told him to murder like a hundred people in battle, yeah, okay, sure. But, but there we have, then coming back to our idea, you know, that, that Rousseau turns to religion. Uh, where, where Heinlein then kind of you know brings in a form of civic religion, you know, it's this kind of the 
the the nation, but then actually the nation is represented through the military. So your your duty and your religious duty that you you should give your life for is is the military. There's also, I mean, there's a so that that what their moral imperative may not be grounded in God, but it is grounded in ma- what we could call manifest destiny. Yeah, it's a you know there's almost a a, a spiritual right for mankind to conquer the stars. Yes, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say it's a spiritual right, and this is where I think republicanism is quite interesting. It's a necessity, right? And this is the Darwinism thing. Right? I mean, the, the, the right to conquer the stars comes from the fact that they need to conquer the stars if they're going to survive, or that's the way they see it. But, I mean, the, the, the group still, the, the group, the book's still very firmly grounded in the eye. So, space is a frontier in American fiction. Yeah, no, absolutely. And 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 uh, there are things that live on the frontier, but they're weird animals and savages, so bugs and skinnies. And but I think that's a slight distinction. Whereas the, I mean, while the original migration to America was, you know, for perceived persecution or whatever, I mean, the idea that was instilled in <coughs> Americans, I think, or at least what I understand it to be, is, is is that you know, filling the Great Divide was, you know, you'd go out there and search for your wealth, right? Now, I mean, that's reversed in Heinlein. They, they go out, you know, they're not defending against the bugs. They're co-belligerent with the skinnies or, 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 or whatever else. I mean, it's a far more aggressive take on what that can mean. But, but that's the thing. The, the whole kind of frontier shapes the right citizen. If suddenly the frontier will collapse, and I think that's why he also kind of conspicuously avoids closure at the end of, of, of not showing us what actually happens to the bugs. Do we defeat them or do we not? Um, is kind of that that it needs this kind of frontier. Otherwise, it would not make sense. We we cannot forge the right citizens anymore. Oh, it's certainly constitutive. Of yeah, absolutely. Right. But the, the the plot is about the forging of the citizen, right? So yeah. the 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 war, the right citizen. Yeah, right. The, the soldier citizen. Yeah. So the war isn't the plot of Starship Troopers. Johnny Rico becoming a man is the plot of Starship Troopers, and we're not lose the war later on. And it's it's implied they're gonna do okay after getting a brain bug. We're not lose that. The happy ending is I'm man. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think that that's kind of. I, I don't think leaving the war unfinished is this commentary on the nature of warfare. I just think it's. Well, I think actually, I, I think you're right. But from the point of view of saying whether they, if they win, right, it's glorious. They've survived and they've, I mean, conveniently surviving and fulfilling your moral purpose. Dovetail at this point, right? They come <laughs> together. Well, isn't isn't that nice, right? Um, but if they'd lost, they could still claim that they've kept their moral purpose because they've gone down fighting. But I, I think one, one of the problematic things is that, and I, I liked how you pointed it out, actually, it's not a citizen-soldier, it's a soldier-citizen. Here, here it's kind of reversed in the Republican discourse. It's like, here you're first are a soldier, and then you can become a citizen. While otherwise it's more you are a citizen in order to defend your citizen rights. You also have to well, engage in soldiers. That also is quite interesting questions about the status of the civilians. Yeah. Because, I mean, they're almost never mentioned, right? I mean, they're not citizens. They're, they're not abs- absent, kind of. Their yeah. absence is constantly there, but um, they're, they're absent in doing anything particular for the plot, apart from the the fact that uh, when his uh, mother dies on the attack on Buenos Aires, uh, then later the father well, enlists. Is this, Sorry. is this just fundamentally... So this is James Floyd's point about America and guns. Is this just fundamentally American, that America is a country where there were people who were subjects of a crown, and they had to pick up guns to become citizens? Mm-hmm. Right. 
and if that's a valid interpretation of the arc of history, that you can be a person but not a citizen, and the Americans achieved the latter by being soldiers and then citizens, hmm. is it just a reflection of historical process that being written inside that? I mean, that's a very contentious defense of both um, America's view of violence and the book. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of which I really subscribe to, but... Yeah, you have to, you know, coming back to the thing, so, so um, how, how Cordel de Bois says, you know, in order to have liberty in life, you know, you have to put the effort and the sacrifice in it. Um, but I think, you know, we, all, we always forget, um, it's not that the Americans um, started the revolution out of an idea of, um, you know, starting really to free themselves and become their own nation. Um, it started out as a civil war, and that's what, what it was for a long time, a, a war for representation in the British Empire. Uh, being still part of British citizenship, um, which then the result was some form of freedom. Well, I mean, it was certainly the. I mean, even in leaving Britain in the first place, I mean, they still. I mean, that was a moral purpose thing, right? Hmm. But I think it evolved into that. It was not from the beginning, so it was more this idea of of rights and duties. Yeah, I have certain duties, but I, I'm lacking the rights to actually, mm-hmm. you know, no no representation, with, no taxation without representation. No, that's long. And then it evolves into something else. But I think a wider point is that, as a nation, there's no idea of heroism that predates that process. So you talk about what British heroism means, you might get a King Arthur-esque response. Mm-hmm. Right, and that predates the state. Um... And you, you could ask that question in Asia and you'll get maybe modernized ideas of the samurai or, um, uh, an ancient Chinese folk hero or, um, from, like, Ram from the Ramayana. But in America, the idea of the hero is a, a modern warfare one, right? But, but it's also always then, you know, the, but the American was not there after the revolution, that's the problem. And I, I think he really starts, and this then comes, comes from, you know, the, the Turner thesis, the Frontier thesis, that we kind of, that the, the, the real American forged himself at the frontier. So only when the American went out to conquer nature, again, the, the, the you know, the, the march of progress to the West, uh, the, this fantastic picture of the maiden of the West over the, of landscape flying over mm-hmm. there. She's the manifest destiny. Funny that she has been, she's a she, not a he, because well, the American hero is always a he. Um, when the American man starts to go into the West and starts to conquer uh, nature and, and, and carve out his own soil and his, his property for himself, but he's usually doing that individualistically. Uh, he struggles alone against the nature. I mean, like, the, the, the Marlboro pictures are always the best. You know, the Marlboro cigarette pictures of the cowboy by himself next to the fire. You know, he's himself lost on nature. Yeah. So I, I, I think, I think the last point I want to make is the, to me, the aesthetic climax of the book is this really weird moment where they're counting all the ships. And, the, 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 there's two naming conventions, it seems. Big ships are named after battles, and small ships are named after war heroes. Yeah. yeah. And it's this really weird aesthetic climax in that this is the, um, this is the sort of the pan humanity, so there's Gallipoli and, uh, yeah, Gettysburg right. and Hastings and the Alamo, and what's interesting about some of these is many of them, are, many of them are losses, right? So, Gallipoli is <laughs> a disaster, Gettysburg is bloody for, the side we traditionally view as the more romantically heroic one. The Alamo is this disastrous last stand, which has been overly romanticized. And then there's all these people like Bertengeterix, uh, there's Geronimo, who of course is fighting against America. Mm-hmm. And it's this really, like, we're all super excited and happy about this 
collection of people and events which have no unifying thing other than violence. There's no single thing all those battles or warriors were about. Yeah, and but, so to me, but we can weave them into our, into our own narrative. Yeah, but I think that's the point. You yeah. know, we we can assume this and take it in and make it part of our narrative, whether it's good or bad. It doesn't matter. But they, they, they you, you, there's, there's there's nothing in that. I mean, I know they're warships, but that that narrative is always one of violence, right? That's yeah. the yeah, it's always always you, violence. You, this is Neil deGrasse Tyson's point. Your society names things after things it thinks are important. So we're going to have an aircraft carrier called the Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> whereas, whereas this is it's like what does humanity have in common we kill things yeah. and sometimes we die doing it yeah but this is this implicit assumption that humanity kills uh, and the moment we kind of make peace and escape the state of nature uh, after the the democracies failed and all that kind of stuff we recreated ourselves what do we do we go out and we find an enemy yeah. or that enemy finds us uh, well that's probably just that's, good. that's probably a good way to wrap up. Uh, seeing we're in London, uh, we're now all going to go off and play a live action game of Mornington Crescent. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, we'll see you all next time. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much.